Welcome to the Andrew Young School podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we'll speak to Dr. Christy Seelman, Associate Professor of Social Work at the Andrew Young School. Dr. Seelman's research explores the experiences of members of the LGBTQIA community within health services. Her research has been published in the Journal of Social Work Education, the Journal of Homosexuality, and more. Currently, she teaches courses surrounding topics of human development, social welfare policy, and community partnerships, while continuing her research promoting equity and access to healthcare services for members of the LGBTQIA community, specifically individuals identifying as transgender. So I'm here with Dr. Christy Seelman in her office in the School of Social Work. Uh, Dr. Seelman, thanks for sitting down with us today. Sure. I'm glad to be here. So first things first, what was your path to Georgia State University? You've been here a little while, but for those who haven't met you, can you tell us how you got here? Sure. So I've lived in a number of different places that have impacted my journey and who I've become and where I've focused my research. So I first kind of went in the direction of social work when I was uh, in AmeriCorps VISTA. So I worked in Burlington, Vermont, and was focused on um, childhood hunger, doing some community outreach and research about that issue. And I worked with a number of social workers in that organization, and that helped me to think about social work as a career option for myself. And I went to Colorado after that to work on my Master of Social Work and my PhD in social work. And while there, I developed my research skills and also my interest more around doing research with the LGBTQIA community and uh, was myself coming out as queer at the time. And so that has really influenced the trajectory with my research over the long term. Um, When I was first on the the job market. Um, In finishing my PhD, I really wanted to work at a university if possible. I thought I wanted to be able to continue the research I was doing, but also be able to engage with students and to teach future social workers. And I was really open about where I landed in terms of geography. But something that was really captivating to me about Georgia State from the beginning is that our MSW specialization is in community partnerships. So my my own training and background was an MSW in leadership for organizational organizations and communities. And so I thought that was a really good fit for our own specialization here. And when I came to campus and met the faculty, I was really impressed. They were supportive of each other and of the research that I was doing. And that was really important to me. And I also appreciated that Georgia State has a really diverse student body and um, was really excited to land here in the end. Well, we're very happy to have you here. Thank you. So language and different means of identification are pretty core to the work that you do with the LGBTQI community. Um, How did you specifically, and the field of social work in general, settle at the current terminology? With any kind of terminology about identities, it 
it's important that it can evolve and change over time and in different contexts. And that's also the case with the LGBTQIA community. So LGBTQIA stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual. And all of those terms are things that have evolved over time and have shifted. And one of the things in general, but also in social work, is you want the words that you use to be reflective of the community that you're working with and also culturally responsive with um, how they're identifying and and what is seen as appropriate language. Um, One factor that influences language is that you want to use the words that the community themselves are using and also that's not overly pathologizing or negative. And so with the LGBTQIA community, terms like homosexual and transsexual, they've emerged from fields like sexology and and the medical professions. And while they're still useful in some contexts and with some populations today, um, they're generally seen as more dated than terms like transgender or gay. Another factor with language and language shifting is generational differences. So millennials and Gen Z might be more comfortable with a term like queer. Um, so queer is, is a word that historically was used in negative ways and might have been used in the context, for example, of bullying someone. But it's been reclaimed by the community to be a more positive term. You can use queer to, to describe the whole rainbow umbrella, I would say. And it can also be more fluid than terms like lesbian and gay. And, you know, I use the term queer for my own identity, but I'm also aware that some folks from older generations still have difficulty hearing or using that word themselves. So generational differences matter. People younger than myself are even pushing language further around fluidity and changing identities. And so uh, generations are having their say of of what language they use. And the other thing I would mention is that um, terminology also is dependent on cultural contexts. So for example, some women of color have and still feel pretty excluded by the lesbian community. And so they may feel more attached to words like stud or ag or aggressive or same gender loving and use those words rather than lesbian um, to describe their own identities. And it's important to have the power to be able to name that for yourself and, and to feel like you belong in relation to the words that you use. Of all of the elements of the LGBTQIA experience, what led you to focus in on healthcare and mental health and the general healthcare system? So when I was in graduate school, I was doing some research around discrimination affecting transgender people. And I was focused mostly at that point on education settings and social services. But when I came to Georgia State and was pretty early in my career here, a community partner that I had worked with back in Colorado had reached out and said, we have this great statewide data set about transgender health and experiences in healthcare, and we'd like to be able to publish from it. Would you be interested in working with us on that? And 
I jumped at that opportunity and I was really excited to, to work with them. Um, that was one Colorado that I worked with there. And in the process of, of doing that research, I learned more about um, people's experiences as, as transgender patients and accessing healthcare and some of the barriers they faced. And, you know, for me personally, going into a doctor's office or a hospital often feels pretty intimidating or impersonal or clinical. And I imagine that's even more so for um, populations that have felt a lot of stigma around trying to get help and um, have had negative experiences in the past. And so I think it's a really important setting to focus on. Another thing that I've learned over time is that um, in some national surveys, transgender adults are saying that access to healthcare is one of their top concerns. And so I've wanted to focus my attention on this area for that reason. One of the other pieces to this is that in social work, one of the most common areas of practice is in healthcare. And so within my discipline, I think it's important to be able to contribute research to that area that influences a lot of social workers. So kind of drilling down into this, how would you explain the kinds of health disparities that we see with LGBTQIA individuals and how are they maybe more likely to experience disparities in their health care than other populations? I think, first of all, it's helpful to know what health disparities are. So health disparities are differences in, in health outcomes that are often based on disadvantages that people have experienced. So that could be um, having a, a characteristic that is stigmatized or viewed negatively and that that impacts your health. It could be exposure to toxic chemicals in your neighborhood environment, or it could be living in poverty. And there are certain populations that experience, are more likely to experience those disadvantages. So that tends to be groups like um, indigenous populations, people of color, uh, people who live in high poverty neighborhoods, and then LGBTQIA people is another example. And so there's a number of reasons that this population in particular may experience stigma that impacts health disparities. So as an example, I use this theory in my work that's called the transgender theory of stigma. And it impacts people on a, num a number of different levels in their lives. So one being the larger culture and norms and policies that communicate stigma and reinforce it. And an example of that is how many medical schools don't include coverage about transgender health, um, either at all or in, in a very minimal way. Um, and that then leads to a medical profession that is generally not prepared to, to serve this population. Another way that stigma manifests is interpersonally, so from one person to another. And an example of that would be someone experiencing bullying or harassment or physical assault based on how their gender is perceived. And so those interpersonal interactions can also influence stigma and consequently health. And then the third way is internalized stigma. So the way that we might internalize beliefs and attitudes about ourselves, such as um, 
that there's something wrong with me or that I'll never be able to find a doctor who can serve someone effectively like myself and so I just won't go searching for one. And those types of attitudes tend to relate to depression and anxiety and delay of healthcare. All of those things are factors that then contribute to furthering disparities in health. So in your recent research, what specific disparities have you seen impacting transgender individuals with regards to both their access to healthcare and just their experience once they get into the system of healthcare? One of the the major things to know in this area of research is that our data are not at the best quality to, to be able to really document to the extent we want about health disparities. So to to look at health disparities, we need to have generalizable data um, that can accurately capture these disadvantaged populations. And many of the larger federal data sets that look at health are just starting to collect data about gender identity in a way that captures transgender people. And so the data are um, have been behind the times and are just now kind of catching up so that we can start to look at some generalizable comparisons between transgender adults with other adults. And one of the papers that I did recently looks at one of those federal data sets, the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, and about 20 or so states in that data set a couple years ago had been asking a question that captured transgender identity. And in our paper, we looked at comparisons between transgender men and non-transgender adults. And two of the disparities we, we saw there is that transgender men were less likely to have a personal doctor than other populations, and that they were more likely to face financial barriers to accessing healthcare than the general population. Most of what I've studied looks at data sets that we have of transgender adults in general, and we can look within the population of what are some of the differences in health by other identities and risk factors. And some of the findings that we've seen so far is that trans people who are also people of color or low income or have disabilities they're more likely to say that they've been treated poorly by a doctor, like being harassed or being asked inappropriate questions, and that the mistreatment that they experience correlates with psychological distress and suicidality. So those are some of the the patterns that we've started to see within the community. And something that I'm looking at in some research proposals that I've made is whether that mistreatment in healthcare also correlates with using substances to cope because in other populations we find that um, when people are experiencing extreme stigma and a lack of access to effective healthcare, they might be turning to drugs to try to cope with it. And so there's there's still a a lot of um, interesting, important directions we can go in with the research and and we can continue to advocate for the data to get there so that we can document some of the disparities very rigorously. Speaking of that data, as you know, the Andrew Young School is embarking on this digital landscape initiative, and 
how data and analytics impact policy is a huge chunk of that. And one of the questions that we in the dean's office find ourselves asking is, how do we know that the data we have is complete? How do we know that we're using the correct data before we even get to whether we're using it properly? Mm-hmm. So what would what in your mind would look like the ideal data set for these issues? Do you have an idea of where you hope these surveys get to and where data on transgender and other LGBTQIA populations is a decade from now? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the important things up front is for some of these uh, federal surveys. So some of the most rigorous generalizable data sets we have are coming from the government and um, document access to healthcare and physical and mental health um, in the moment or over time. And they, there's been a lot of resistance, I think, in different sectors around adding questions that capture the terms that transgender people use for their identities and do so in a way that um, can accurately collect information both from not transgender adults and those that are transgender. And um, I'd like to see more surveys using those best practices that are already documented by groups like the Williams Institute around um, how to ask gender identity um, questions and to do so in a way that, that can help us look at disparities. So I think it's looking at the knowledge that's already there around measurement and um, not not holding back in, in adding those questions to some of those those data sets because to really be able to look at this population in depth, we're going to need um, to have those questions on these large general population surveys. So once we get past collecting the right data and analyzing that data, let's get to kind of the dream state at the end of this whole process. Mm-hmm. What would the perfect LGBTQIA affirming healthcare environment look like in your mind? Well, I can offer some suggestions that get us towards perfect. So one of the things that I would say up front is communicating that patients are accepted for who they are. So this is something across the board, across the whole LGBTQIA plus acronym and I think for other communities that experience stigma and discrimination, that we want to communicate that they're welcome in in the office or clinical setting that that they're seeking help from and that they won't face judgment for being who they are or they won't face pressure to try to change who they are. So that general broad acceptance is really important across the board. Um, Another thing that I would recommend is providers and staff educating themselves ahead of time um, on these issues. So not relying upon a patient to explain the word transgender or what exact surgeries they've had to do your own education up front about serving these populations effectively going through trainings, reading books and and educational materials. There's a lot out there that can be used to help increase cultural responsiveness of providers. So doing that education up front is key. I'd also say that um, 
visibility really matters when it comes to communicating that people are welcome. So in promotional materials, marketing materials, website photos, anything that is communicating the purpose of, of that service or healthcare office, that people can see themselves represented in, in the populations that are described or the images that they see. So for lesbian and gay and bisexual, pansexual adults, that they can see couples shown in images that include same-sex couples. And for um, other folks, that there's representation of patients that are visibly not gender-conforming. Um, those images matter just like they do for showing like uh, diversity in skin tone of patients. So showing that that representation upfront really matters and, and also relatedly communicating in your materials and your website that people are welcome across different identity groups, including sexual orientation, gender identity and expression. Another thing that I was thinking about was um, intake forms. So when we're asking patients to fill out some information when they first come to the doctor's office, that that information is collected sensitively so that people can indicate, for example, their gender in a way that captures more than just male and female. Um, the, one of the best ways to do that is to just have an open-ended question, what is your gender, and have a blank, and people can fill that in. People who are not transgender know how to answer that question. People who are transgender or non-binary can, can put in the terms that best um, reflect their, themselves, and so we're not putting people into boxes. Um, it's really important uh, when filling out intake forms and then when you're in the waiting room that staff are referring to you with the name and pronouns that you use. So if there's a way to indicate that on an intake form and make sure staff and providers are trained to address people appropriately, that helps communicate a sense of affirmation for individuals. So not just assuming the name that's on their insurance card or their ID is how they want to be addressed. So um, one last thing with what could be done to best serve this population. So when asking questions about sexual history, to not assume you know how patients will answer that question, um, keeping it open-ended and not responding in judgmental ways. And if someone indicates, um, for example, a woman has said she's only had sex with men in the past, to not assume that she'll only have sex with men in the future. So not assuming that past behavior predicts what the future will be or what that person's identity is. So those are some recommendations that are out there, but um, that's also something constantly evolving of ways we can always improve our services. I think one of the things that makes this topic intimidating to some people is that idea that it's constantly evolving, mm -hmm. that it feels like you constantly have to redo your homework, right? You have to mm -hmm. relearn all these things. What advice would you give for somebody who is maybe interested in this field and is kind of new to it and is intimidated by that, or even just someone in a related field that wants to 
kind of refresh their knowledge? How, mm-hmm. What resources, what techniques would you recommend to stay current? So I personally try to pay attention to new books or movies or videos that are coming out um, that have perspectives that I might not know as much about or that might update my knowledge. So I have varying familiarity with the different letters of the acronym LGBTQIA. So maybe I see something, um, some materials about people who are intersex and I know that I don't know as much about that population. So maybe I want to, you know, make sure I'm reading more and learning more. Having that openness to learning, I think is really important. Um, I think it's also helpful to identify some of the organizations around the country that are doing work on these issues, like the Fenway Institute or the Williams Institute, and they're regularly releasing um, updates about research and best practices. And so following those types of organizations on social media or subscribing to their news lists, those are ways that you can get the latest kind of information that people are working on and um, kind of update your own knowledge. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Seelman, for sitting down with us today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. For more information about Dr. Christy Seelman and the School of Social Work, visit aysps.gsu.edu slash social dash work. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance from Jennifer Giratano. This episode was edited by Carlisa Johnson. Our executive producer is Avani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies, located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice, and we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.